0: And Christ shall raise his scepter, decreeing endless peace. Will that not be a good day? Indeed, my friends, in joyful anticipation of that day, but celebrating his incarnation with you this morning, which guarantees that he will return a second time to decree endless peace. My dear friends, I don't know if you're a big fan of Christian Hollywood movies or not, some of you really love him. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic, and I'm kind of a, a grouch about that stuff. Charlton Heston was an awesome Moses, wasn't he, in the Ten Commandments? You've maybe seen it in glorious black and white on rerun channels. He's, that was probably his greatest role, thundering thundering away. Some of you, a little in more recent times, might be fans of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, uh, a very attentive Uh, and accurate movie, in fact, even to the point of trying to speak the original languages and using subtitles. But my issue with Hollywood movies is that in order to create a full-length movie, you have to add so much dialogue and so much other stuff. And my fear, my pastorly fear is that the people who watch this cannot tell the difference between what of the dialogue and the scenes were made up in Hollywood And what actually is scriptural. And that has taken some of the fun out of it for me. In the Passion of the Christ, for instance, there's this cutesy scene of how uh, the young Jesus in their home in Nazareth invents the chair. Remember that scene? Did you see the Passion of the Christ? And, of course, that didn't really happen. But who knows that? I mean, if if you're just an ordinary person watching that, you might think, oh, Jesus invented the chair. Well, I don't think so. But I'll tell you, there's one movie that uh, has a touch with the Bible and which overlaps our story today, which mostly has nothing to do with the Bible, but it, it does have one useful and helpful part of it, and that is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you seen it? That's pretty famous. I think most people have seen it. If you haven't, it's great escapist fun. Uh, you can, if you net do Netflix or I don't know how you watch your movies today, if you have streaming services or whatever, uh, or there's still a lot of DVDs floating around of it that you can borrow, I'm sure. And it, it, it uses the Ark of the Covenant as its visual centerpiece, and it has nothing to do with anything biblical except this. If you want to visualize what the original Ark of the Covenant looked like, Harrison Ford and old Indiana Jones can kind of help you out because that was very scrupulously done. If you had been a high priest, one of the only human beings on earth ever to lay eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, you would have seen very much like the golden box that Indy was looking at in that movie. It was about, it looked about the size of a hope chest. You know the, the boxes, the traditional boxes where young unmarried women would start collecting stuff for their home someday, the linens and, and some of the nice little things that their female relatives would give them? That's about the size of it. Or like a trunk, like your great-grandmother's trunk that's maybe sitting in your granny's attic right now about five feet long and about two and a half or three feet wide and about that same height. It didn't have feet or legs. It had rings, just like the other uh, pieces of equipment of the tabernacle, because it needed to be portable. It had its own covering, though, because the people were not allowed even to look at its golden beauty. There were golden rings set in the corners And there were poles then that would be run through. In fact, because once they set it down inside, once the the carriers, the official carriers set it down, uh, they didn't move it again. The poles were left inside and left in the rings. It was inside the most holy place and only the high priest only once a year was allowed to go in there. And even then, he had to be throwing up clouds of incense because God wanted his majesty and his mystery to be shrouded from human eyes. Remember that the tabernacle was like the interface between sinful people and a holy God, between a broken, dying earth and the pure, uh, undying, holy heaven. This was the interface, and God was simultaneously saying, "'Come to me, but not too close.'" You could approach to the courtyard, but no further. Only the priests could step into the outer room, the holy place. Only the high priest could step into the inner room. It was a 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot cube. Solomon's later was built to a much bigger scale, but it was the same proportions and it had the same equipment and same concepts. God had instructed the craftsmen as the people of Israel were encamped around the foot of Mount Sinai, he had instructed them to build for him a portable tent church. A big courtyard, about a quarter of the size of a football field, with a fence that could be uh, stretched up and put up and taken down, had poles and panels of fabric stretched in between and animal skins. And then was the tent itself, 45 feet by 15, by 15 high. And that was where God met his people. Here's what he said he wanted them to build for him in the innermost sanctuary. This is from Exodus 24. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it, with pure gold. Where do you suppose they, where did Where did ex-slaves get gold from? I'll tell you what, on Juneteenth Day, the original one, when the slaves in Texas finally were able to run for it, uh, they weren't packing a lot of gold. Where did these Israelites get all this gold? Well, recall that as they were getting ready to leave Egypt, the Egyptian people were begging them to get out before their country had nothing left. It had been hammered and its economy ruined by a string of plagues. And the night of the, the passing over of the angel of death, passing over the Israelite homes, it did not pass over the Egyptian homes The the Egyptians were so eager to get rid of the Israelites, they tried to bribe them in any way they could to get them out of their land while there was anything left at all. And very likely the gold that the Israelites had was jewelry, was Egyptian jewelry that they melted down. They actually constructed a gold foundry and melted down that jewelry and then would roll it or cast it in the shapes that they needed in this case they rolled it out flat and hammered it into sheets which they then used to plate or cover the wooden box so the wood disappeared and all you could see was the gold cast four gold rings for it fasten them with two rings on one side and two rings on the other so it it sat low it was not like a tall table Its little feet were like the feet underneath your couch, just tiny little feet, because the box basically was to sit on the floor and the feet were small. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and insert the poles in the rings. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They're not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Uh, Moses didn't have it yet. Uh, he wasn't going to get it until exodus 34 and then of course he was going to break the first set and god would have to make the second set one of the side uses of this beautiful golden box was to serve as a museum and ultimately it had three objects inside of it as a remembrance of the amazing acts of god you know what was inside well i just told you one The Ten Commandments that God himself carved on two tablets of stone were put inside. You know what else was in there? A pot of manna. They saved some manna, which somehow God gave a little puff of breath and like air dried it out so that it would never decay or spoil. It would last forever and it would be a reminder of the time of the 40 years when miracle food Came out of the sky and lay on the ground for the people to scoop up with their hands every day for 40 years. And the last manna to exist went into the golden box, into the ark. And the third thing in there, do you remember what it was or do you know what it was? Aaron's rod. Now, I don't know, normally a walking stick for an adult male, you'd think would be about six feet high, so it wouldn't fit. So I kind of wonder if they got a chop saw and kind of cut her in half, and put it in half, or um, if if they just had a piece of Aaron's staff. But what was so amazing about Aaron's staff was the Lord, at a time of leadership challenge, did a miracle to show that Aaron was indeed His chosen leader and the man He had chosen to be the high priest, and that staff began. This dead, dry, hunk of wood started to blossom. That's as outrageously impossible as if you would go to Home Depot and get a two-by-four, and by the time you got it home, there already were pine needles on this two-by-four. You'd say, what? This wood was, was was dead. How on earth is it living again? It's all sticky with sap, and there's branches growing out of it. Impossible, incredible. That was the sign... God did to show his support for and authority of Aaron. All right. On the lid, make an atonement cover. Uh, If you're as old as me or even close, you might remember being told earlier in your life that was called the mercy seat. That's the old term for it. And a couple of our hymns still have that term mercy seat in it. But the uh, more up-to-date term for it is it's called the Kaporeth in Hebrew it means the the place of atonement and make that of pure gold as well five feet long it's like a bench it was going to be like the throne of God on earth couldn't see him but that was going to be his earthly residence and he's gonna sit there <clears throat> and what makes it possible for any human being to get even close even the high priest was that atonement had been made. The, the, a, a substitute had died, and when the high priest would go in there once a year on the great day of atonement, he'd be swinging his incense pot to throw up clouds of sweet smoke, and he'd be sprinkling blood on the atonement cover to remind God not to smite the Israelites because a substitute had already died. These, of course, were pre-enactments of what was gonna happen on Calvary where the Lamb of God died for the sins of the world. So that flat spot got the term atonement cover. And the Lord, as this is like a little representation of heaven, so as you know from your peaks at heaven from the book of Revelation, God is always surrounded by angels worshiping him and attending him to jump to do his every wish. And so his earthly throne needed angels too, but they were going to be golden angels. Make them out of hammered gold. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make them of one piece with the cover. So they're integrated with the lid, the kaporith, the atonement cover, at the two ends. Have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover, and then the wings would touch. Uh, they're to face each other, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Then above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you my commands. An extraordinary thing. And to complete the story, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead to Exodus 40 when they had constructed everything according to God's blueprints, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. He shouldn't have gone in there anyway because he wasn't a priest. But here's the the key word, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Christmas fire. This is this is the fourth and final bit of fire in the way that God wanted to show up and represent himself. Remember there are four kinds of fire in the tabernacle, four layers, four rings. The outermost ring is the consuming fire of the place of sacrifice where animals, substitutionary animals were killed, were butchered, their blood often caught and used as part of the ceremony to hammer home the idea that God is a consuming fire, that he is a God of law who is serious, deadly serious about his laws, that human sins are capital crimes in his court, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Over and over, that drama was reenacted in the most public way possible. That God wanted people to see. And so that was called the tent of meeting because that's step one in how you meet God, acknowledging your sinfulness, your need, your inadequacy, the great distance between you and God. But it also was a place of meeting because that is where the gospel was spoken. That is where mercy was demonstrated in that God would accept a substitute for you and you could go free. Through your faith the forgiveness and innocence of that substitute would be put on you and you now could call yourselves god's children you could live in peace and security living in joy the second ring of fire was the ring was the uh, the candlestick which threw illuminating fire so consuming fire on the outside illuminating fire inside and the lampstands stands through their light on the 12 loaves representing the Israelite people. This showed that it's like by proxy now, the lamps representing God and the bread representing the people. Here's the touch point. This is the interface. And God threw his light on them to show that his eyes were on them all the time. Ring number three, it was the fire of incense. It was an aromatic and fragrant fire, that exemplified that people forgiven by God smell good to him now, and he loves his children. We have a sweet smell before God. And the final fire is the presence of God himself. So what did that? The fire of the, the presence of God himself show as it went into the tabernacle, and by the way, when Solomon finished. The construction and on dedication day of his new temple 1st Kings 8 tells us that the glory of the Lord once again became visible and literally went into the building and went into the most holy place and there in the darkness that fire burned in splendid isolation what did that show it showed number one that I am here it showed God's special presence on earth. This is a big deal. I think one of the things that makes a lot of your neighbors, makes it hard for them to believe in God. One of the reasons that some of your family, especially the younger ones as they're growing up, are turning to atheism and being agnostics and being so skeptical of Christianity is they just don't see anything. They, they're not aware That God is here. They're not even aware that this is God's world. They've been told since they were little in their school classes that the world evolved all by itself, that there is no God involved in bringing about the physical universe, and they are not able to see or perceive God on earth anywhere. And so the fact that God would demonstrate to the Israelite people, I am very much alive, and I'm going to let you see me go into my house on earth. is a big deal. It's a big deal for you and for me as well. To see that God was on duty developing his plans of rescue for the fallen human race. Not just in our lifetimes. But this has been going on for millennia. Secondly, not only I am here, but I choose you. What? A dignity given to the Israelites. What a high calling and high role they had. How precious and valuable they were to God's plan of salvation for the world. You are my chosen people, not just because you're so cute. In fact, God on various occasions had gotten so disgusted with them he was going to destroy them all and start over if he hadn't been talked out of it by his leaders. But what a... What a dignity given to Israel that it's among you that I will pitch my tent. I choose you not only to be objects of my love, but you are my ministers. He said to Moses on Mount Sinai, You will be for me a kingdom and priests. I want you to represent me to the world and show how good it is to have a relationship with me. Third, The third and final piece is that fireball inside of their place of worship showed that God's protection and his care were going to be there and available to them. And just when you read the stories of what God was willing to do for the Israelites, there seemed to be no limit to what he would do to bring about their security and prosperity. Now, when the Babylonian captivity came and the temple was destroyed, the glory disappeared. Scripture does not say when the new temple of Zerubbabel was built whether the bright cloud went back in. It very well might have. Was the bright clouds in the temple that King Herod had rebuilt? Scripture does not say. What it does say is this, when Christ died on Calvary, the The curtain that had been shielding the most holy place from the sight of any of the priests that was ripped in half to show that there was no one there. Not that God had left, but that there was now a different way for the glory of the Lord to be on earth. And that glory was Christ himself. This Christmas season, I invite you to celebrate all over again the incarnation of Christ, which is the true and ultimate glory of the Lord. Those shepherds in the sky got to see God's actual glory. It didn't go into the tabernacle or temple. It didn't even go into the manger, although it could have. It bathed those shepherds in glorious heavenly light, and they were allowed to see The glory of the Lord, the fire that did not hurt or consume, it only illuminated, it only smelled wonderful, it only protected. And they were given the glory of the Lord to build up their faith, but the true glory of the Lord was in the form of that baby. And that is the paradox of Christmas, the greatness of God lying in his mother's arms. The one who feeds the universe himself needed to nurse. The one who came to fix everything needed his own diapers to be changed, like you and I and every other human being who ever has lived on earth. Isn't that astonishing? But it is in Christ that the glory of the Lord was shown. This is what demonstrates that God cares about us still. He comes to you and to me through word and sacrament to show I am here. This is how I show up today. This is the interface between you and me today. You don't have to kill any animals. You don't have to light any incense. You don't have to light any oil lamps. And you don't have to carry around the golden box. Frankly, God has shown that he is completely uninterested in the Ark of the Covenant. After it was destroyed, after the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, um, probably because it was gold, it was taken. Was it kept as an art object? Um, Probably it would be shown off. What happened to it? No one has any idea. By now, it's probably been plundered or looted and been melted down because it does not appear to exist on earth any longer. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need it. It is now just a thing and its significance is over. The Ark of the Covenant no longer is the the place where the glory of the Lord is to be found. Christ is where the glory of the Lord is to be found. And you and I will meet him through word and sacrament. Whenever you read the Bible, a little bit of a glow comes out of it and you can't quite see it, the angels can see it, but just as Moses' face glowed when he was in God's presence, Every time you read your scripture, the angels can see your face get a little brighter. Because some of that glory, as you meet Christ once again, will actually come to you. You will interact with it. Every time a child or a grown-up or of someone of any age is baptized, the Spirit of the Lord begins to live within that person. It's not just a ritual, it is an encounter with Christ. The spirit comes to live within you and the book of Romans chapter six promises that all who are baptized are buried with Christ. We participate in his death, burial and resurrection. Holy week becomes personal for us and you and I are connected through the washing of baptism with Christ. It's not the water that does anything, but the word of God, speaking his power, connects you with the glory of Christ. And every time you eat and drink of the supper of the Lord, you become part of the body of Christ. And his heavenly glory, his radiant body right now in heaven, is physically connected with you. That is how you meet the glory of the Lord today. That is how God shows up in our world today. It is a scandal and offense to people who say, I can't see anything. And that then gives them the excuse, I'm gonna make up my own religion or develop my own religious philosophy. That is the culture and age in which we live today. But I urge you earnestly to use this Christmas time to celebrate the fact that the glory of the Lord did come to earth and the same messages that the original tabernacle brought to the Israelites God brings to you today first of all I am here he his presence fills the world he lives within every one of you and me we are walking tabernacles and temples of the Lord the Bible tells us that we are God's um, two-legged temples walking around If people want to see that God exists, theoretically, you should be able to figure it out by looking at the behaviors and listening to the words of God's believers. So you can represent God's presence and his glory in the way that you talk and live. The same message that the glory of the Lord over the tabernacle gave Israel, God gives to you, in that your forgiveness is guaranteed. The sacrifice of a substitute has been made, and you now receive what the Old Testament Israelites received. You now receive the same thing. God's choice, God's forgiveness, God's favor, and God's forever. You are immortal. And someday you will see everything. We will know as we are known. We will see as we are seen, Scripture says. In the meantime, through the word, you are able to see what God did on Christmas. And the incarnation of Christ guarantees his commitment to you, the value that you have before God. Commits himself to a connection, the relationship that you have to God through Christ is the most precious Christmas gift you will ever receive. And as Christ came to our broken world to be one of us, he also is going to make us like him, Scripture says, for we shall see him as he is. That day will come soon. In the meantime, hang on to these amazing stories, for it is through word and sacrament that we interface with our God. He is here. He is kind and forgiving and loving. He's going to help you and bless you in your life, protect you and help you navigate all of the stresses and problems that you will encounter. But he's going to lead you. This is only the the preliminaries. Your real life is yet to come, and it is guaranteed for you by the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is good news for God's people. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.